Well-being. What does it mean to you? The podcast is Frontiers. The episode number is seven, and my name is Matteo Penso, your host. This podcast brings you the content from Frontiers Next, our conference on the future of well-being. Welcome to a special episode where I will have the pleasure of hosting four female leaders in the field of nutrition, coaching, fitness, and venture investment. And in this episode, I also would like to welcome my friend Nana Bita Vergim, part of the advisory board of Frontiers Next, who will drive the conversation further. Nana is about to introduce Sara Roversi, CEO of the Future Food Institute, Lara Catan, founder of Sparks of One, Natalia Karbasova, founder of the FitTech Summit, and Vera Futuriansky, chief executive of Veritas Ventures. We are going to talk about nutrition, meditation and mindfulness, fitness, mental health, experiential well-being. Nana, welcome to Frontiers. Now, I would like to introduce you to a fantastic panel built uh, and then introduced by full female speakers, wonderful lady and international experts. We will take you in a very nice and uh, exciting journey on the, on the future of the well-being. So, is it half full, my glass, or half empty? You will find out. But do, do me a pleasure. Think about one question. The question is, what does wellness, well-being mean to you? I will ask you, I will get back to you at the end of our discussion. Please welcome our fantastic speakers to the stage. Lara Catan, Sara Rovesi, Natalia Karbasova, and Vera Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Um, so I would like to ask you first, uh, what does each of you, what does uh, happiness mean to you? Mm -hmm. Sarah. I start. I'm Sarah Roversi. I'm the founder of the Future Food Institute. And happiness for me is uh, balance, sociality, harmony. Uh, and I think that food, that is my main focus in life, has a huge healing power and can connect all of those dots. Wonderful. Lara. Um, so my name is Lara Katan again. Uh, for me, happiness is a state where you can experience a lot of positive emotions. It's a place where you can take care of yourself and your body. Uh, you feel at peace, you feel there's also growth and expansion and that you are able to contribute in meaningful ways to the people around you and to the society. I wasn't prepared for this question because, you know, happiness is one of the words that we use so easy and nobody can define. <laughs> um, so I think happiness, for me personally, if happiness is combining performance, like mental performance, physical performance, but also the uh, mental stability, and the ability to make impact. Yeah. Great. Vera. Yes, I agree. I think happiness is the combination of things. It's definitely, for me, the fact that I can make voluntary choices, that I can decide today I'm taking the time to, let's say, meditate, or I can take time and go see my parents. But it's also the conditions where you live in, and um, it aligns very much with Deepak uh, Chopra's happiness formula. I saw him on stage last week at the Milken Summit, 
And he said happiness equals the state of mind, which I think is really important. It's what, not what, just what happens to us, but how we react to it. The conditions we live in, and you don't necessarily have to be super rich to be happy. In fact, he said you're actually not very happy if you're very rich. And the voluntary choices you make. So H equals S plus C plus V. I think it's a great <laughs> happiness formula to remember. It also made an impact on me, and I very much align with, with that. Wow, that's nice. <laughs> So, uh, emerging technologies, Internet of Medical Things, not just Internet of Things, are transforming our lives, and not just our lives, but also our professional culture. And um, the modern leaders are struggling, especially inside, and struggling to become more professional, more productive, more successful. Laura, what do you think? What is it, uh, career well-being? Yeah. What is it, what does it mean for you? Yeah. So I think you touched on a very important point that we live in, a, in, a, in a, an era where there's lots of technology happening, there's lots of transformations. We really live in a fast-paced world, and that has a lot of effects on the people. That has a lot of effects on well-being in organization. So there's a, you know, stress is on the rise, depression is on the rise, loneliness now, there are new research about loneliness in the workplace. So there's a lot of things that are happening and that is really, really affecting the productivity and the performance of people. And not just that, but it's affecting all parts of their, their, uh, their lives. So what I always like, when I sit with companies and with entrepreneurs or, or, or leaders in organizations, I always tell them, you are the source of your business. Your business, business is a reflection of yourself. Uh, sorry, your business result is a reflection of you as a person. And so in order for you to take care of the, your business and your results, you need to take care of yourself first. And this is the missing piece I feel like a lot of people are not guessing it, is that you are, your body and your mind is your intellect. It's the way that you lead people. It's the way that you make decisions. It's the way that you can, you know, be productive and make, you know, powerful, you know, make an impact and powerful contribution in the world. And if you don't take care of the miracle, which is your body and the miracle, which is your mind, you are not going to be as effective as you want to be. So one of the most important things that we work with is, dealing with that aspect is that with the well-being aspect of, you know, how much sleep you get. It's just like there's 50 years of sleep research out there that's telling us that we need seven to eight hours of sleep as a minimum. Good sleep, not sedated sleep, not based on sleeping pills or alcohol or whatever. Good sleep so that you have the best cognitive functions that you, you, that you can, that you can bring yourself to the day and apply yourself in the in the job in a useful way. You need to meditate. And thank you, uh, Richard, for talking a little bit about uh, breathing as well. So you need to be able to meditate, to breathe well, in order to you know move from the constant fight and flight response to a more centered place where you can actually make the right decisions. Exercise is a big one. Obviously, uh, and we noticed that the top high performers, like the 15 top percent of high performers out there in the world where uh, we studied them as per the High Performance Institute, they are really, you know, fit people, not just fit in terms of like they look good, but they exercise uh, regularly. 
at least three times per week more than other peers. And we also know that nutrition is a big factor when it comes to bringing well-being in the workplace because lots of people are really missing out on this point is that when you feel flat, you know, you're tired, you're, you're fatigued, you're wiped out by the middle of the day, it's potentially because you are not putting the right input in your body. You're not, you're not generating that energy. So there's lots of factors that we work with the organization when it comes to that physical, in addition to that mental and emotional well-being, because we need to be able to, to, to generate positive emotions in order for us to be productive. More the, the top performers, again, are more happier and vice versa. When you are more happier, you become a, high, a more high performer and that's really correlated and linked. So it sounds like a very complex uh, It is. It, there's lots of things involved in the process, but yeah. Wonderful. So as Natalia mentioned that um, uh, the ancient uh, Romans uh, believe that uh, the healthy mind uh, depends on healthy body. So we are just uh, figuring out the situation, the current situation that we definitely need to, um, and that it's proved already the situation that the fitness and physical activities improved uh, our mental health. But um, thinking about the question to age, not to age, by the way, uh, who of you wants to live forever? Or 120 years. Raise your hand. Oh, forever. Forever. <laughs> oh, wonderful. So 120 more. years. <laughs> no, not for, it's not sure. Yeah. So this is the this is a fantastic thing, and this is the question to you, Natalia. How fitness and technology can help us to age well and age and maybe live forever. Well, these are two different things. I mean, living forever has so many cultural, societal, and psychological implications because, you know, if I think that mortality is something that makes humans humans and makes them understand that life is, you know, not endless and then reach certain things. So I think we're going to experience some shifts in the psychology and human psychology as well as soon as we're able to live till, say, 120. So it's going to have implications on the job choices, on family choices, on your life purpose, on basically on everything, right? And um, what I showed you in my presentation was, ironically, um, technology aimed at very young populations. So it's mostly aiming millennials. And there's also a big gap between like cool tech for millennials and un not so cool tech for aging populations, which I think is a big mistake because you know that lots of middle-class guys and populations worldwide are aging. Um, with some exceptions like India, but populations worldwide are getting older and older. And the middle class has enough income to provide themselves with sort of services, with the right fitness applications. But ironically, they're being treated as really like old guys out there and um, they have skyrocketing health costs and nobody's really taking care of them, right? So prevention actually has to start from the childhood because we, we know that it's all about behavior change. And uh, the older you get, the more difficult it is to change your behavior. Um, on, the one, on the other hand, there's also the part of uh, the population which is so rich that they can really afford any sort of research, any sort of equipment, any biohacking techniques, whatever. And uh, they're you know, trying things out from maybe upload, uploading their brain to the, to the cloud, to blood transfusion, to... DNA, you know, splits and changing your um, DNA 
So these are all the things that are uh, happening very fragmentally. Because mm. I think the, the best way to treat older populations is to start young or at least at the age when you are like reaching 20 or 30 and to create healthy habits. Because to be honest, you don't even need technology for that. It's just normal, healthy lifestyle choices. It's just eating good, sleeping well, uh, exercising enough, meditating, um, meditating, meditating movement, yeah. keeping your mind at peace. And then if you age, why not? But you will be aging beautifully. Wonderful. So um, the, uh, the science proved, and Richard uh, just mentioned that recently, that uh, the um, anti-aging uh, medication, it's not just the fitness and technology, it's also not just the mindful, it's also nutrition. And we spoke about, we touched this point already, but we have the founder of Future Food Institute here, Sarah Versi. Sarah, what do you think? What is the angle between the right nutrition, right food, and uh, well-being. So I strongly believe that food is a very complex topic. We think that it's easy because we drink, we eat all day long since day one, but actually it's a very complex topic. We will see also later in my presentation how much all our food choices actually can have an impact not only on us, but also on the environment that is around us. So studying food really from the fruition perspective, the production perspective, the consumption perspective, we started investigating how digital and uh, this cultural evolution actually started affecting the entire life cycle of food and entirely our relationship with food. Starting from our relationship with the environment, our way on how we produce our food, how we cook our food, the access to food, the superfoods and the super values that we give to food, food as a medicine, the lifestyle that is changing. How? Now we are ordering food, we are not cooking food anymore. There are countries in which houses are built without a kitchen. This is going to affect so much the culture and the sociality of the families up to the awareness and how much we know about the food, which are actually the driving force for the food that we choose to eat and how we source our information. Are we sourcing our information from the WHO? Are we sourcing our information to nourish our body from trustful sources? So all of those topics, of course, affect on the way how we nourish our body. So when we think about our life, and aging population, how aging population is going to see food and approach food. I think this is a huge topic. And we all know that actually when we think about nutrition, we're not just thinking about the building blocks of our skin and our body. Of course, we are, have to think about how we feed our brain, but also how we feed our soul is very important. And you were talking about mental health, and this is mm. crucial. And overall, for aging population, this is one of the biggest issues because when you're aging you're stopping cooking you're stopping taking care of others and food is not a service food is not a commodity food is care when you think about food you think about caring about someone else and through caring about someone else you're caring about yourself so I, I invite everybody always to think about the complexity of food and not only of course uh, the elements the science behind that but also the community side of that and how we share it and when we share it. So interesting. Uh, you just uh, mentioned that the food is a, is a new medicine. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, that's, don't forget about that. It has been always the medicine. I love your, I love your point. 
A lovely point, exactly. So I think for that, it's, you know, it's just a social experience. And there's been, you know, so-called blue zones where people live over overproportionately longer, like in Japan or uh, on an island in, in Greece. And uh, they found out that the point is that they have social supportive structures where different kinds of generations, young generations and old generations live together, support each other, and they have this trust in their environment. So you might have noticed that for yourself, when you cook for yourself, you just, you know, you just cook something, throw something on the plate, and then it's okay. And if you cook for somebody else, it's a completely different kind of experience. You care for somebody. And this caring is actually part of uh, mental health for human beings. It's something exactly. that we keep, you know, ignoring all the time because we're getting so functional, but that's not right. Yeah, absolutely. And absolutely. One more thing. I yes. really loved her point also about the food is medicine because we live in a, you know, an era where people just go to doctors when they're not feeling good. But and so the, our entire medical system is based on you not, you know, you, you, you're, you're getting sick, mm. but it's a just prevention. Uh, sorry, it's, it's correction. It's correction. It's not prevention. Why are you sick from the first place? Is it because you're stressed? Is it because you have like lots of negative emotions? Mentally, the mental stress can create a lot of physical problems, right? Is it because you're not eating the right food? Is it because you're not exercising? So our entire system is based on, okay, when you are, you know, not sick, you're, you're okay, you know, you're okay. When you get sick, we treat you, but it should be completely reversed going to prevention rather than just waiting for somebody to get sick and then treat them with a pill, which is not very natural or, I, 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 you know, it could help, but then why don't we prevent it from the first place? Yeah, exactly. So I think that healthcare has become sick care and like a common scenario is you just swallow a pill, you wait till it falls down somewhere in the stomach and then you wait for the result and wait and wait and wait, nothing comes. And then you wait again and go again to the doctor, right? So that's wrong. Because, you know, the East medicine has um, a way more holistic approach to treating people uh, than the West medicine. And luckily, the Westerners are also moving into this more holistic direction right now. Right. So um, basically, as Matteo said at the beginning, uh, the, the well-being is, uh, is a huge, is a crucial uh, predictor factor for building the uh, future of health. And I think as a digital health, and we're all surrounded by digital technologies, and this is the, the future of well-being is a future of health and future of digital health. Um, the new old technologies, as, as all of you mentioned, they democratization and they bring in a, a innovation wave in a much stronger way. Interesting, how, what's happening in the business of innovation in that area? How kind of uh, investment are we having? We, we've seen on the slides presented by Natalia that uh, it's a huge wave, especially 2018, happens in the area of well-being. But uh, maybe Vera can elaborate that and can explain us what is going on in the global, what is a global trend in investment yeah. history in the well-being industry. First of all, I got really hungry just by listening to you, so I'm waiting for that coffee break, Matteo promised, hopefully with some Italian food as well. Um, and also just quickly to touch upon the living until 120. I think, um, and it was also mentioned last week at the conference I went to by the Bulletproof founder, mm -hmm. It's not just about David living just. until 120, surviving until 120. It's about really thriving. So how do we, you know, biohack that, that we don't just, you know, end up in a wheelchair for the last 10 years, but actually really live to the fullest, you know, being 
fully capable on all levels, mental, physical, emotional. I think that's very important as well, that we'll all still have enough to work on. Well, nobody wants to live until 120 and sit in a wheelchair, right? Yeah, 100%. But many people want to live until 120 and be well. I mean, I'd love to. I mean, yeah. there's so much to see in the future. I'd love to see that. So, but going back to your question. Um, so I did some research last night. I come from the venture capital space, not necessarily a health tech expert. So I looked into that and I realized there's so much potential that maybe I should look into it more. It's amazing. So the Global Wellness Institute research says that the global wellness economy is a $4.5 trillion market. $4.5 trillion. I mean, that number is even difficult to imagine how many zeros there are. Um, and also interesting to see is that the industry grew by 6% year on year from 2015 to 2017, which is twice as much as the global economic growth by uh, you know, the IMF numbers. It's amazing. There's so much potential. Also, obviously, being in the VC space, we'll have unicorns. Unicorns are the companies that are worth a billion dollars. And there are 38 VC-backed unicorns in the digital health space, which is quite impressive. You probably heard about the Headspace news last week. They raised $93 million, again, as a Series C. Um, I think also interesting enough to point out Headspace started as a consumer, so a B2C app uh, for consumers to meditate. It moved quickly into the whole B2B uh, segment as well and started working with corporates such as Starbucks, GE, for them to get their employees involved and actually looking into, you know, encouraging employees to, um, to look into mental health. Let me see what else did I write down. Um, yeah, besides, uh, well, meditation apps are big. So the global mm -hmm. trend is a lot about meditation apps. However, I feel, and I come back to it um, shortly, I was thinking during Natalia's presentation that in the 20, no, 1980s, we were all in group classes. And I remember in the 1990s, I used to work out since I was a child. My dad really pushed me. And then I joined the gym and I was going to those fitness classes. But more and more, we're, going, we're becoming isolated. It's not about the community anymore. And I think the community is important in food and right. exercise and everything we do. But we become, we do our Peloton bike at home. We buy those expensive screens for at home, like you said. So I feel like we need to think about how can we make it more community friendly again, because that's when we really connect and thrive. And Paul was talking about um, well-being. And I think what's important is we need to make it experiential as well, right? It's about experiential uh, well-being space. Um, on the meditation app also quickly. So Headspace is one, but Calm also last year made news, not just with another $88 million uh, they raised, but also with Moby, who is a DJ, released this album exclusively on the Calm app, which is quite impressive. I mean, when did we ever have an artist working exclusively with the meditation app. I think that's very interesting. That's a very good point. And I think that we also see the platformization of apps. So, you know, Netflix was one of the examples. And then we have Peloton, which is, which is trying to become yeah. Netflix for fitness workouts and Calm, which is trying to become, you know, Netflix for uh, meditation. Exactly. Well, they're doing a great job, I must say. And Absolutely. I'm the Calm user. Yeah. I, I started Calm and Headspace, but I, after having been to India in an ashram, I really kind of have my own mantra and I try to meditate every day. And I think forming those habits, meditating every day, and those go, goes back to this happiness question, the voluntary choices of waking up and saying, I'm dedicating the first 45 minutes of the day to yoga and meditation goes a very long way. Mm. But I just quickly want to bring into the regional perspective here as well, because I live in Dubai, probably uh, like uh, I might be the only speaker who lives in Dubai. Um, and I think it's very interesting. In Dubai, we actually have a minister for happiness and, um, and well-being. Right. That's really interesting. I mean, how many 
countries in the world have a minister for well-being, right? Yeah. And it's a woman as well, which I think is amazing, her excellency. We're so lucky to be here and uh, because yeah. the conference was uh, initiated by Matea, but also uh, funded by Ministry of Happiness and Well-being. Yeah, and there's a national strategy on well-being, which is a 10-year plan, but 2031, Dubai would like to become um, the leader on quality of life. And there, I used to work for Dubai government before, so I'm, it's quite impressive to see because, I mean, 50 years ago, there were no paved roads in this country. And now, you know, there are missions to Mars, there are well-being councils, so it's quite impressive to see the evolution of this. And there's a lot being uh, put into making sure that the well-being of the community, of the, of the corporate sector is, is really being addressed. Very interesting, but having your rich background in investment and knowing your rich experience in a different ecosystem, where actually money coming from, from geographically, what investment, what countries are investing mostly? In, I mean, the, well U, the U.S., of course, is still number one. That's where the most money is. Silicon Valley is still the epicenter of uh, technology. But, um, I mean, things are changing slowly. China picked up a lot. I think China is number two uh, country in terms of unicorns nowadays, not just in health, but uh, I don't know about health, but in general. Um, Europe is picking up. Middle East was still quite early in that. We do have, um, there are more VCs coming up. Luckily, some sovereign wealth funds have dedicated um, or have promised to invest in the region as well. Before that, they were mostly investing globally. But yes, I mean, it's mostly in the U.S. So the biggest venture capital firms are still in the U.S., but it's really great to see, because I'm European by background, it's great to see that Europe is picking up as well and realizing we need to invest in startups, because otherwise, later when the unicorns, the return on investment will be elsewhere and not in Europe. So there's, there's a shift happening. So design the uh, well-being landscape today, we learned a lot of interesting stuff. So all of them about experience, about the uh, um, food as a new medicine, about the fitness and fitness technology, which will make us uh, uh, live stronger, well, and age also healthier. So basically, it's all about collaboration. I think this is the code uh, for the well-being, collaboration, and to, uh, to solve the all complex problem, and to solve and to find the way in well-being and happiness. So I would like to come back to the question which I asked you at the beginning. What does well-being mean to you? What does well-being mean to you? This is a fundamental question we should answer in order to decide how to change our behaviors towards a well-being lifestyle. Thank you, Nana, and thank you, ladies, for your tremendous contribution. Thank you all for listening, and do not forget, May 19 and 20, Frontier's next well-being conference from our hubs in Saudi Arabia, Dubai, San Francisco, and Milan. More information on our web portal at frontiersnext.com. That is all for today. Arrivederci.